Yeah. They literally had the, the master tapes do some cocaine. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Welcome to 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where lifelong musicians, friends, and above all, fans of music get together to analyze the albums from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Before we get started, I just want to say we love music, we respect the craft, and anyone who even attempts, even if they fail miserably, but we also (laughs) love to nitpick and poke some fun, so get ready. We're going to tell the story of the album, of the band, the making of the record. And then we'll get into some specific songs, play a bunch of clips. Don't worry if you haven't heard this one in a little while. And at the end, we're going to vote on whether or not you really need to hear this album before you die. Let me read you a quote about the band we're going to discuss this week. Delivered from the record label executive upon receiving the final album. He said, How could you ruin this great punk band? What are you giving me this pop shit for? We are, of course, talking about the Go-Go's, or just Go-Go's, and their debut record, Beauty and the Beat. So just to give ourselves a little context of what we've been listening to this week, and for you, the listener, we're going to play a quick snippet of the biggest hit by far by the band, the Go-Go's. It's called We Got the Beat. context on where we've been at this week and i should say that it is particularly exciting this week because we're all sitting in the room together oh yeah Yeah. together at last staring at each other's lovely mugs in rich technicolor hd didn't we do one of these before were you were you not present at one of those i guess we've done a bunch of them actually yeah yeah. we've never done one with the four of us all right all right this is the first time that the original og episode one crew is together in the same room yeah okay i didn't i didn't realize that that's fun yeah so we live somewhat far apart but this week we are all together in scenic delaware pretty exciting so let's go around the room and introduce the cast of characters for the day with your tweet length reviews. I want to hear in a tweet how your week has been and what you think about the album in a nutshell. Tom, you go first. All right. Thank you, everybody. This is Tom. My tweet length review. Beauty and the Beat is like a group of seemingly wholesome girls tempting you to come and hit the town with them. But you soon realize they're talking you into a cocaine-fueled romp through L.A. It is intriguing, it is fun, and it's somehow both carefree and a little dangerous at the same time. Nice. Nice work. Let's keep it going anti-clockwise, as some might say, (laughs) over to Adam. 
Hey, everybody, this is Adam. And Rob mentioned we all saw each other's faces. We see that every week on Zoom, but I'm really excited I get to see everyone's legs today. <laughs> We're all in shorts, and might I say, we are a damn sexy group of uh, <laughs> short-wearing fellas here. Anyway, my quick and very short review is... Don't let We Got the Beat ruin this experience for you. What's, what's wrong with We Got the what's Beat? What's wrong with it's that song? It's a good song. song. Is this more cover band memories? <laughs> just, that you have it to might be, yeah. That one? Just starting off wrong again. Right. <laughs> Jeez, Adam. Let's kick it now to Phil. Hey, thanks, guys. Definitely excited to be here this week. Adam, you used to play We Got the Beat? No, I don't know why, though. Maybe it could be that this song is so diluted on the same order as Edgar Winner's Free Ride. It's in car commercials. It's on back to school Target ads. I feel like we got the beat is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And I kind of can't stand it. So I came into the week. Anyway, I'm getting into my overall review. But I came into the week with that kind of hanging over my head. And I almost let it ruin the experience. Mark it, boys, that this is the first time the Go-Go's have been compared to Edgar Winter Group. And what, by the way, where is that Go-Go's Arby's commercials? <laughs> we got the meat. <laughs> we got the meat. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Seriously. Yes. Yes. So my, uh, my tweet length review is, uh, can a 14-minute focus list that leaves me skipping every song be part of a must-listen record? Might be a contentious week, fellas. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. This is Rob here, and my tweet is kind of in the vein of Tom's, a little different because we are different human beings. What I learned this week is that amidst these throwback, catchy-as-hell pop songs, and despite their tween-friendly, bubbly-as-pink-champagne image, even the Go-Go's can manage to destroy a successful band with rampant drug addiction. Oh, yes. And also, let's say, being kind of shitty to each other, and the cardinal sin of not talking about the money beforehand. Not talking about the money before the money comes. Yes, we're going to get into all that. I would love to hear a little more about the general impressions before we dive into the history of Go-Go's and talk about the making of this record a little more. What? How did you guys feel? We We got a preview of it in the tweets. Already chippy. In the room. It's no Edgar Winter freaks come out at night or anything. Well, listen, the album is very samey. It has that issue of we glued all of our knobs in one position at the beginning of the recording session and never changed them. A lot of the songs are constructed very similarly. They're very simple songs, but I do think that there is an infectiousness to their approach. And maybe part of that was I watched a documentary about them and then listen to the album a whole bunch more. And it really did give me this longing for my days in the chop when you we just felt like we were in a pirate ship roaming around towns and having a great time. And one of the members made a comment at the end talking about their reforming because they had had a bad breakup and they didn't talk to each other for years. I thought you were talking about members of the chop. No, no, I still hate you motherfuckers. But, you know, the Go-Go's did it. They did reform. And one of the reasons that they did is they said nobody else knows what it was like to be in the Go-Go's because it did have this singular energy that I, I found to be infectious and it did come through on the album. They did come across as a group. Part of that, some production choices, the way that they choose to do their vocals, some of the subject matter of their songs. They talk in the plural a lot. But I thought that overall, it was it was pretty good. And I was kind of refreshed to see how not sexualized they were. 
They're all cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will compare them to the Bengals. Susanna Hoffs is a fucking smoke show. She is still, to this day, absolutely gorgeous. And not that the members of the Go-Go's are not pretty, cute, beautiful, but that wasn't the thing that was played up. It Their wasn't. lyrics definitely are more like girl power. Like, and it's maybe even like the Spice Girls sort of way. Like, there's a sort of like, yeah, there's something that. about that's like join the tribe. Totally. But, you know, like about it. Like, yeah. But their music videos weren't. Let's pick the hottest one and do a close up of her face the whole time, and you know that kind of stuff. It was. It's a lot more fun and kind of oddly wholesome for as not wholesome as they were as a band in general. But overall, I had fun. I enjoyed the week. And I will say it's often that my family does not enjoy the listening process. And I didn't get any complaints this week. Kids liked it. My wife liked it. It's universally unoffensive music. Except for our two friends in this room who were offended, apparently. Yeah, but they're offended just curmudgeon assholes. <laughs> so obviously, I'm, I think I'm up next. I'll say obviously. I don't know if you want to... <laughs> so... They could definitely sing, Adam. I totally agree. Like, uh, it was one of the things I, and the, it's definitely, I think fun is the right word. I, uh, had the pleasure of listening to this on two different long-ish drives over the last week. And yeah, it's fun. It's really good music to sort of space out to or sort of partially, you know, sort of partially be with. It's, 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 it has a nice driving quality. They can sing in a very wonderful way. They sound great, you know, like real, Real pitch perfect. There are there are shades of uh, shades of indigo girls at times. I think, and I, I think it's both the production and the harmony choices. Uh, there's also some like cure esque moments and and some some talking heads moments. I'm um, just in the production choices. Think I think there were many interesting pros. Let's not go too crazy with the indigo girls, okay? They had some good backgrounds yes, at yes. times, but they're not doing those crazy complex uh, harmonies uh, uh, but they did have surprisingly good singing there's some, considering yeah. that belinda carlisle is not that good of a singer okay i was gonna comment on that because it's literally my first note in my general notes is belinda is not a very good singer and i think they're able to produce and even write around it a lot of the time and i did enjoy the record i would say on the whole i agree with all the positive comments that it's a fun record Weirdly, I don't agree. I think the songwriting gets a little samey, but I think the production in a couple key cases elevates the songwriting in a really nice way. And that's kind of how the hits to me, the hits were quite obvious when I listened to the whole thing. You're like, this is clearly the hit. Yes. Even the secondary hit. Right. So I noticed um, and you guys all mentioned driving to me. The best thing about the band is the drummer. Yeah, I, yeah, oh, yeah, sure. You know what? I have in my notes, Rob's going to love this drummer because she does a lot of floor time. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's able to take simple beats and make them driving and interesting and get a little bit of that jungle beat vibe. And I just think they use her well. I also responded to the fact that when I read, wait for it, guys, I not only watched the Go-Go's documentary from the last couple of years, I read Belinda Carlisle's memoir and Gina Shock, the drummer's memoir. Listen, this was light fair. I breezed through it. And to be honest, neither of those were any good. But Time for a sponsor break. Brought to you by Adderall. I just wanted to say I also aligned with the drummer, partly because I heard, and we'll talk about in the history, that when she joined the band, she's the one that helped whip them into shape and say, we need to practice more and get serious and like get with it. Did Okay, so you two watched 
the Go Go's doc. She had that East Coast accent because she's from Baltimore. She's so Baltimore, dude. She's so Baltimore. Oh my god, yeah. She even says like Baltimore, not even Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crab yeah. chips are in her pockets right yeah. now. <laughs> 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 okay. Fucking Old Bay flavored lip balm. Okay, let's talk a little bit about where this band come from though, because came from because like Adam was saying, this is not a manufactured band. This is not a female monkeys or something, right? And that is an important component, and I admit I didn't know that either. They came from the L.A. punk scene in the late 70s. The L.A. punk scene in the late 70s, it was apparently a very small scene of dedicated punks who mostly enjoyed the fashion of the U.K. punk scene. And it sounds like we've talked about it on previous episodes, but... What was going on in the UK at the time, Sex Pistols, bands like that, but specifically the fashion was taking off partly through, now I'm blanking on the guy's name, but his wife's name is Vivian Westwood. Is that by the guy from New York Dolls? Oh, from the, the Adam Ant guy. Yeah. The Adam Malcolm Ant McLaren. Right. right. And they really purported this punk as a, as, a, as a fashion style. And so it made a lot of magazines, and I think the kids in LA were really influenced by that in addition to the records. This is a small place. They're all from LA except aforementioned Gina Shanko has a very thick mid-Atlantic Baltimore accent. It's very noticeable. It's our kind of our accent, too, so that's part of why we're making fun of it. And I, I wanted to mention, too, that, you know, so this is like full-on safety pins and ripped leather jackets and zippers over your breasts that you could unzip, you know, stuff like that, right? That kind of real grimy punk stuff. In fact, Belinda Carlisle, believe it or not, she does present as very cute and airy, and she even went on to have a solo career. She was in the first incarnation of The Germs with a young Pat Smear, who is currently playing in The, Foo, the Fighters. Foo Fighters. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh. And also from Nirvana's yeah. MTV Unplugged fan. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Late Nirvana, probably like the in utero era. It was the Kurt Cobain can't really be counted on to play the guitar anymore. Yeah, yeah. Nirvana. Yeah. And he's been in the band with Dave Grohl ever since, right? But he was in this band called The Germs, kind of a seminal punk band. Well, Belinda Carlisle was their original singer. She called herself Dottie Danger. But she got mono and couldn't make the gig, and so they replaced her. <laughs> so I'm just With picturing, you, you missed one gig, and like, I'm sorry, you're out. What? <laughs> well, so many of these bands were, we are formed for a gig. And so we, we make a band because we got a gig. And if you can't make that gig, that might be the entire band. Right. That might be the yeah. entire run of that I band. I think there was also one. just a strong aesthetic, especially in this punk scene, of every, we should just have a band. I don't know how we're going to do that. We don't play any instruments. And Belinda Carlisle talks about after they first formed the Go-Go's with, with kind of that aesthetic in mind, they really didn't know really how to play any of their instruments. Right, right. In fact, the only person that they brought in that was classically trained was a guitar player, or sorry, was a bass player that they forced to move over to guitar. They asked her if she played guitar, and she was like, yeah, sure. If it means getting in this band for one night, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody does that. Nobody does the reverse move. It's always the guitar player becomes the bass player to be in the band. Nobody's the bass player like, yeah, sure, I'll be the lead guitar player of your band. Yeah, I could totally do that. Two more strings that I've never touched before? Yeah, I got this. (laughs) I was going to say that one of the early, Belinda Carlisle relates an anecdote about they played a couple gigs in the early incarnations of the Go-Go's and she thought she was this great front woman singer and she listened back to a tape of herself and she was like, I am horrendous at singing. <laughs> well, I loved the fact that in this documentary, they're talking about their early phase and everybody, members of the band, fans of the band, they're all talking about how absolutely terrible they were. They're just, they were just 
absolutely horrible. And they're like, so anyway, we were the house band of the Whiskey A Go-Go. Nah. Like, what the hell? How does this happen? How are you the house band of the Whiskey A Go-Go when everybody says you can't play your instruments, you can't fucking sing, so, you can't write songs? It's the punk thing, right? The timeline is a little murky, but yeah, I think it has to do with what was going on in the punk scene. I know that they spent quite a bit of time playing as a band before they got a record deal. Right. And so they had a long time to write and rehearse these songs and even change out members. So two of the members didn't start with them. One was the drummer who ultimately couldn't commit to rehearsals or didn't want to quit her job or something like that. And so that's when they called in Gina, who had recently moved to L.A. looking to play. And she was an accomplished drummer or reasonably accomplished anyway. And then a little later on, the bass player also who got upset about them basically moving away from their punk roots right and and moving towards stadiums versus right. 300 seat clubs that are half empty and they're all throwing stuff at you okay but why on earth sorry i'm jumping ahead in the story right. my bad we're jumping ahead a little bit but the anecdote there just to right getting right into the drug use is that when they the re- way that woman got kicked out of the band ultimately was they had some shows booked, like New Year's Eve shows. They were sold out at the Whiskey. They were already kind of a phenomenon in L.A., and they had released a single that was imported from the U.K. of We Got the Beat, and it was kind of catching fire. This woman was disgruntled. She got sick, couldn't make the shows. They asked this bass player to fill in like three days before, and she went on a three-day Coke binge yes. to learn 19 songs from a really crappy tape. You can imagine the, the tape they had at the rehearsal studio. Sure, sure. And that's how cocaine entered the band? Oh, my God, no. Oh, no. Okay. When Gina Shock talked about moving out to the West Coast, she said she moved out with like $200 and two grams of Coke. That was her. She's like, I had $200 and two grams of Coke. I got in my car and I got out to LA in like two days. Like, yeah, let's fucking Cocaine do it. was Story just a tool. Out. It didn't necessarily <laughs> enter the band, but it was a tool. Okay. Let's go back. Let's do a little history, right? So when they first started out, I thought this was interesting. They strongly considered calling themselves the Misfits, which later was Danzig's band. Oh, yeah. If you recall, but the reason they didn't do it is because the Kinks put out an album with that title and they thought that would be copying. It was put together in the sense that they actively decided to have an all girl punk band, which still which was kind of novel at the time. I think the main precedent for it would have been the Runaways with Joan Jett, but they never really achieved much success. And the Runaways were much more of a some skeezy 35-year-old dude got a bunch of teenage girls and was like, let's make you into sex kittens that we're going to make that the whole vibe is that like you'll fuck any dude. And it was way more skeezy. Yeah. We talked about the wholesomeness of it. This part of the wholesomeness of this is that they were this kind of group of friends that made this happen and they weren't put out there by the machine. In fact, they came to the machine later and they even said that the machine kind of ruined them. The machine was the downfall of that band, like getting into the machine up until yeah, they then, weren't they, were they weren't great. like a Capitol Records like brand development project. No, it wasn't like, hey, I got this Belinda Carlisle chick, let's find some some right. bandmates for her or something like that. Yeah, like, they who's all the, came who's the dude from Journey? He got like shopped around every band. You're talking about the short Filipino dude that's the new no, singer? No, I'm talking about the, the OG guy. Steve oh, Perry? Steve Perry. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he was like a dude who, like, the record labels were like, "This guy's a star," and we then somehow, and somehow he landed I, in Journey. Have so, you seen Steve Perry? Who looks at that guy and is like, "Oh, this is like five, I, this seven, was the, it was it was dude. an age of radio, dog. Yeah, fair age enough. of radio. Yeah. 
pre MTV <laughs> music videos, which I think is going to come into play in our story here. Tom is correct, right? That they started organically as friends. And my point is only, and they got better together as friends, right? And they developed themselves and their sound as friends in a reasonably organic manner. They even talk about the shift from punk towards pop and just saying it just happened organically. For for the most part, those were just where the songs kind of were taking them, where the, sort of the audience was taking them. My point was that they did have some savviness or concept for the band, which is when they wanted to replace players, they said, we need all women in the band. That's the concept. And there weren't a lot of great examples of that re- in recent history, which is maybe somewhat surprising to the modern era, right? Runaways would have been one. I agree with what Tom said about them. But really what you're hearkening back to is like the girl groups of the 1960s, and they were all... I think, all run by an empresario creepy guy. Sure. Basically a pimp. Basically a pimp. So they start playing in early 1978. But keep in mind, this record doesn't come out until 1981. So they have like a pretty long runway. They needed a long gestation period. They needed a long gestation period. I cannot stress enough how everybody has said how fucking terrible they were when they first started. Wait, wait, wait. I have a a serious question. How much longer will I be gestating? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> do you guys um, know? At, at least another decade. <laughs> you know what, Phil? Nobody is going to look at you and be like, effervescent, <laughs> charming, <laughs> infectious. We just got to get this guy in front of crowds. <laughs> so they weren't that great when we started. And I pulled a clip from an early review. It declared that the band is to music what botulism is to tuna. <laughs> Oh my mm, God. That guy has a degree in English, by the way. <laughs> but they, they paid their dues. They played around LA quite a bit for over a year. And you mentioned the Whiskey Go-Go. The, the first club they played in was a much smaller, crappier club called The Mask. But eventually, they worked their way up to the Whiskey. I've heard a fun anecdote about the Whiskey. It was, at the time, the Whiskey had a policy where you could get in for free if you A, knew the manager, and B, had a report card proving you had a below C average. Wow. That is a wow. punk so C You have to right be in there. high school to be able to get right. in? Right. Jesus they did Christ. not card. Oh, Apparently, that's... Belinda was going to the Rainbow Room or the Rainbow Bar and Grill and the whiskey at like 15. Wow. That's usually not a recipe for success. No. So good for her. That might have something to do with all the drugs that came into play. Okay, so the seminal event, though, is, you know, they're kind of liked around the scene, right? They're seen as effervescent, as you said, and bubbly and fun, a fun band to see. And ultimately, what they do is they get booked for a tour in the UK. This is the result of Madness, a UK ska band, coming and seeing them in LA and just liking their style, talking to them after the show, whatever, and saying, hey, you should come open up for us on this tour in the UK. As it happens, band we already covered, The Specials, was also on that tour. So they're broke. They pool all their money. They go over to the UK. They have this tour. This is before they even lock in the, the last lineup. And I, but, I forget if if it was if they had a manager at this point or if it was one of the members, but she like sold her car. The manager, the, the manager. manager sold her car, sold Fucking all her all like in. basically everything to get them over because the Go Go's were not being paid to go over there. Yes. It was like on their own dime. And the manager believed so much that she basically sold everything. And yes, she was very early on a huge believer in her in, in that band, and we'll get to it later, but. They eventually kind of fuck her over. Right. It was honestly watching this documentary. I was definitely like, "You kind of didn't treat people very well." Yeah. Question. We're really shitty towards question. a bunch of members of the band. Better or worse? Just I don't know the story yet. Better or worse than when John and Paul tell their manager, "You can be the manager if you fire the drummer." Oh, like they made her fire 
the bass player. Uh-huh. It was worse than that. Yeah, okay. it was way worse than that. Yeah. yeah, it's a bummer, but I think it's the scenario is slightly more understandable than Tom's making it out to be. This is after they were have a huge, huge success, and they were a little concerned that they needed a bigger management company. It's not that crazy. Ultimately, that person did get screwed over, and it is really unfortunate. I think they even said in the documentary they they felt bad about it. I don't know what they've done in terms of reparations. I'm just saying. I think what they said was that not only did they feel bad about it, but in retrospect, it was a huge mistake. Correct. And that led to the downfall of the band. What they should have done is said, hey, why don't we give you more resources to build the team that we'll need? I'm to, sa- you know. I agree. Yes, I agree. But I'm just saying it's an understandable mistake to make. You made it sound a little more intense. I don't know. It sounds like you guys are talking about something else. I don't know. Man. Listen, I'm just saying. <laughs> There, there were a couple of occasions in l- learning about the history of the band where I was like, oh, that was the fucking shittiest decision to make there. You guys didn't make the best decision. <laughs> anyway, 23-year-olds. We sorry. only get paid in cocaine. <laughs> I mean, they, yeah, they were young and they all had serious <laughs> drug problems. So like, I can't blame them. Back on track. The point of the story is they go to the UK. They have this amazing time. They get better as a band, unsurprisingly. They're getting spit on by ska fans in the UK. It's very confusing. They considered that the band being very anti them, but I've also heard that UK punk fans spit on you as a sign of respect. I heard that in the Talking Heads when in the Talking Heads research when they went over there too. It's called gobbing. Ooh, right. Jesus. That was one of the record executives that was talking about signing them in the UK was like, I don't know if we can sign these chicks. They seem to get upset when they get spit on. <laughs> like right. yeah, requirement. that makes a lot of sense to me. And apparently gobbing, which was a, a big thing back then, which is extremely disgusting, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it wasn't just they were spitting horizontally. Their whole thing was to spit as vertically as possible. So you could catch one in the mouth if you weren't careful. God almighty. <laughs> that might have led to, come to think of it, that might have led to the bass player who came down with hepatitis, couldn't make the shows, and then got replaced. Yeah. That was the same thing with Susie Sue. She got hepatitis from getting punk spit. Yeah. Wow. The point of the story is they had a great time. They bonded, of course, as a band. And, and when they were over there, they couldn't get a UK label to sign them, but they did record a single for Stiff Records, kind of a punk label over there and it was we got the beat and the backside was how much more and it came over to the u.s as an import they ultimately re-recorded both of those songs for the album that we listened to but the point of the story is that by the time they got back to la their fanship had grown considerably and that's when they were why they were able to sell out shows a little more and have lines around the block but even at that point they couldn't get signed they were getting rejections all across the board from Capitol Records, from many record labels, who are basically just saying, girl groups don't work. There's no precedent for a high-selling band of all women who write their own songs. Which just seems like a real failure of creativity to me. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's clearly turned out to be just wrong. And you'd think you would look at the product and say... Hey, this is fun, and don't women make up more than half of the population? Yeah, you <laughs> they have some money. Yeah, they can spend. Crazy yeah. shit, That's going to be a great segue into our by the numbers. Yes. So listen, just to close that out, they did get signed by IRS Records, which is run by Miles Copeland, Stuart Copeland's older brother, who first was the police, the manager yeah, for the police. Yeah, he bankrolled the police, too, right? Oh, I was wow. going to say, pro move. If you're going to get signed, get signed by the record label that is run by the brother of the most popular band in the fucking world's drummer. <laughs> it's true. That's going to help. It's, it's true. And they later toured with them. And Miles Copeland and IRS Records, which he founded, also released the first several REM records. I think those are probably their two biggest successes. It was a relatively small label, but okay. It's pretty good. 
Go goes by the numbers. 60 million is the first number I want to throw out there. That's the number of viewers for their SNL performance, for which they had 12 hours to sit around and get high as fuck beforehand, which in retrospect was not an amazing decision. They look pretty zombified in the performance. It's not for Shantae bad, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole new level. But it ain't but great. Jane Wildland said, like, we sold a shitload of records the next day, so, you know, we did something they right. They did. That's awesome. They did. Speaking of that, number one, the album went to number one, and it is the first, and as far as I can tell, the only time an all-female group who write their own material have a, had a debut record go to number one, and it sold two million copies at this point. I, wow. I'm That's, pretty sure yeah, that it is the only time that an all-female band that writes their own songs has had a number one record, not even for a debut. I don't think there's been any other all-female band that has had a number one record. It is impressive, and in fact, later, they would go on tour with the police, and while they were on tour with the police, their record passed Ghost in the Machine, which the police were touring for in these huge arenas, and made it to number one. And I think Belinda said that Sting brought champagne to their hotel room and was very gracious about it. Can you imagine being on tour? That's really fun. Yeah. It's a really fun story. On tour with the biggest band in the world, and you surpass them. That's and you're crazy. Like Twenty four. And you're, yeah, right, right. They're all super young. That's nuts. So, a couple more numbers I want to throw out to you. The budget for this record was was not that big. It was a boutique label, and they ended up spending about thirty five thousand dollars, and that didn't cover the mixing. So, seventy five hundred is the amount that the producer Richard Gadaher paid out of pocket to finish mixing the record. Since IRS records wouldn't pay anymore. Wow. This is insane. Why the fuck are people operating like this? <laughs> well, when you're called IRS records, I'm assuming you're not going to be very. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, generous, yeah. What was the, what was the wrestler? Erwin R. Scheister? Oh, <laughs> good Lord. That's a good pull. That's WWF throwback. All right. And the last number, and I hope this is a surprise for everyone in the room, and it's also the first time we're going to use a decimal in buying the numbers. I'm going to go with half or 0.5, as in a half step. Since the album was recorded on tape, at the end of it, the band was so unhappy with the final product and how slow it was, they agreed to speed up the tape by one half step. Shut up. That's really weird. That's crazy. The entire thing just The entire running. thing. That's very gutsy. Any song recorded in G major is now in G sharp because they just sped up the tape. So were they all in standard tuning? I believe so, yeah. So everything yeah. is in a... Yeah, oh yeah, God. yeah, yeah. They literally had the, the master tapes do some cocaine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sprinkle that on. <laughs> a little night fruit. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how they got there and how they felt about it later. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the episode in less than 30 seconds, but I wanted to take a moment to ask you, yes, you, to rate and review the show if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This small step helps us spread the word about the show and helps us continue to bring you the stories and commentaries on the music you love and maybe hate. Right after they signed with IRS Records, they flew them out to New York to record. This record was recorded in over three weeks in 1981, and these ladies partied through that entire time i think they were in new york a little longer but it sounded like a wild time they were off the chain perhaps spending some of that money it's a little unclear i guess some of that money went to per diems and things like that so that that might be where the cash went it was produced by this guy richard Gadaher, 
right? And like I said, it was for $35,000, which was considered quite cheap. So he actually had to, he booked him at a studio that mostly produced commercials, not records. But of course, it did go two times platinum. But I wanted to mention this guy, Richard Gadaher. He had a background as a songwriter first. He used to work in the Brill Building, the famous songwriting shop that Carol King and Burt Burns, who oh, we've yeah. talked about in this podcast, worked in. He wrote My Boyfriend's Back. Oh, that's a great song. He wrote Hang On Sloopy. Oh, that's wow. A, yeah, that's, that's another that's one. Yeah. And he wrote I Want Candy, which came up on the Adam Ant hey, episode. Bow, wow, wow. Oh, yeah. All right. Bow Wow Wow one is a cover, actually. It was recorded earlier than that. As we covered on Adam Ant. That song got two runs around the, the sun? I know. That's fucking a travesty. I know. I think it was a hit both times, too. <laughs> and then the guy, the guy's had a very successful career. Then he went on, sorry, before this, he w- founded Sire Records with Seymour Stein, who you recall signed Talking Heads and Madonna. Basically broke them. Nice. So he was considered a pop producer based on those older pop hits I just mentioned. I mean, that's definitely a successful producer. If you say that's a good resume, yeah. finish this record for me. I have reason to believe he's going to finish that fucking record. Totally. So one of the first things he told this punk band to do, who was high on cocaine most of the time, I know we're talking out of turn, but I'm pretty confident that Belinda Carlisle had a hardcore cocaine addiction at the time. Charlotte Caffey. Maybe we should talk about the members of the group. Belinda Carlisle is the singer. Charlotte Caffey plays lead guitar. She was a heroin addict at the time they were recording this, but I don't think the rest of the band knew. She was hiding it reasonably well, let's say. They talked in the documentary about how one of the members was her roommate for like two years and had no idea that she was a full-bore heroin addict the entire time. Like, how do you even hide that? Heroin is not the kind of thing that you're just like... Oh, yeah, I just did a bunch of heroin. Let me just be completely normal at lunch or something like that. Maybe it is. I don't know. I think but. it's denial meets everyone's doing a lot of drugs. And even if that drug happens to be taboo, you're just able to kind of mix it in with. That's my guess. Plus denial. Yeah. Jane Weedland plays guitar. And I should mention that most of the songs are written by Jane Weedland and Charlotte Caffey. And that ultimately is a large part of what broke them up is the songwriting rights and who the main songwriters were. Notice neither of them was Belinda Carlisle, the singer, and you know who ultimately gets the money when these songs take off. We have Gina Shock on drums, and Kathy Valentine is that bass player I mentioned who learned all the songs on a three-day coke binge in time for some sold-out shows. That's and awesome. did write some songs, too. She has some songwriting credit. Yeah, they, they pop up, but I would say the main songwriters are Charlotte and Jane. Absolutely. I think the only one without a songwriting credit on this album is Gina Shock. But she wrote a bunch of advertisements for... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the New England Tractor Trailer Training School. This is where you should be. She said that later on. She had... She wrote, I think, three songs for Miley Cyrus. Really? And she wrote right, a song. Right. I'm trying I, to think. I, oh, I man. Take back my snarky comment. Again, she seemed the most together because when she joined the band, they were just kind of like, oh, this is just a side project. She was like, yo, we have something here. We need to practice harder. <laughs> Get it together. But okay. No wonder Rob loves her. No wonder. Right, so I just want to say the producer was known as a pop producer. They kind of got paired with this guy. And doesn't sound like, maybe because they were partying so much, they were ready with all the songs. They had a ton of songs that they'd worked out through these years of playing together, and they re-recorded We Got the Beat, etc. He asked them to slow down, but it didn't seem like they were really listening to the playbacks very much. Because when they got the final mix, they hated it. And in fact, they, they still hated the final product. They slowed down too much, which is why they raised it. They slowed down too much. And they hated it. And that was where the comment came from, from Miles Copeland at the top of the show about what did you do to ruin this great punk band? I did hear that quoted, but that is weird given that he put him with this producer. 
who produces pop hits, and these are great pop hits, in my opinion. They they're definitely, or at least two of these tunes are pop rocket ships. So it is funny to hear about how when they got the mix, they hated it. Then I had to kind of dig out that note. It was hard to get to that note about the speed up, but I finally got it in an oral history article on Vogue where they were all talking. Because I even had clipped a little, I'd saved a little snippet from Belinda Carlisle's autobiography or memoir that I was, I was looking for information like this, but it was kind of light on information where she said my vocals were sped up. And it, there was no other context for that comment. So anyway, even after they sped up the tape, which is a thing you can do, we should tell the listeners, when you do stuff like that, the instruments kind of just naturally go up a half step in pitch. You know, if you do it only in a small sense, like a half step, you probably wouldn't necessarily notice by listening to it. The vocals, especially if you know what your own voice sounds like, is the part you're going to notice it the most. So Belinda still hates her voice on this. If you were to accelerate the tape a lot, you get the... The chipmunks. the chipmunks, you get the album and the chipmunks effect, right? I think it's actually how they did that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, exactly. They would actually, in that case, they would speed the tape way down, have people sing normal, and they would bring it back to normal speed. Their voices are super high. But yeah, Rob, to your point, if you're used to listening to audio of your own voice, and then you hear it played back 6% faster, you absolutely know. You sound super weird to yourself. Correct, yeah. Uh, and if you listen to the Belinda Carlisle hit, that it comes after this because if I'm being frank, not a lot of the stuff in the go goes after this album is really that good. But Heaven is a Place on Earth. Mm, yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah. That's oh, a that's Belinda Carlisle song. Okay. Yeah, okay. And she does not sound like she sounds not at all. We got the beat. Yeah, man. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. That said, I even went back and listened to see if I could detect because I just read that half step thing in the last 24 hours. And then I tried to listen again. I certainly didn't notice it during the week that anything might be amiss. I, I'm just a little surprised by that. And I still can't really hear it. It's just a you-know-your-own-vocal-timbre thing, right? Okay, I wanted to talk about the cover just for one second. I know we love that. I know you know it's an audio podcast, so we got to talk about visual things, guys. Right, so so we'll describe it. It's the, it's the five of them, but you probably clicked on this on Spotify, so you know what it looks like. But yeah, it's the five of them. They're all in uh, bath towels, with uh, towels wrapped around their heads as well, and what appears to be some kind of face. Yeah, like Noxzema on their yeah, face. Yeah, right, right. I, I like it. I think it was a good idea. It was done for cheapness reasons, because they didn't want to have to buy outfits. The budget was so tight. Yo. And in fact, so they thought this would be an easy way to get around that, and they bought nice towels at Macy's and then returned them after the photo shoot. <laughs> that's punk. Yes, that is <laughs> punk. Oh, that's hilarious, man. But also... Belinda Carlisle said she had the forethought of if we don't put clothes, if there aren't clothes in it, like the fashion's not in it, it won't be as dated. It will be a more timeless image. She then went on to say, unlike the cover of their third album, which I'm now going to show you guys, which she described as fucking horrifying. Oh my God. It looks like it's a fucking SNL bumper. It, oh yeah, like yeah. I thought there was like terrible. a like a Golden Girls like that's like yeah. that's like a Golden Girl. That is like the, the most girls. holy yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty terrible. Twenty eight. Oh my god. Like like oh my. And again, I can kind of respect the fact that they're not going for sex kitten vibe. Sure, yeah, yeah. But they're all really cute. Like Jane Wilden, she's got that Annie Potts thing going they don't, on. She's super cute. God, was that the third album cover? Yeah. 
that just look they look ridiculous they may as well be dressed as clowns <laughs> well you yeah. know just, just to be clear even belinda realizes that <laughs> but anyway clowns would have been more timely yes certainly bottom line is this thing gets back into their hands before release and none of them are happy and miles copeland from irs isn't even happy now belinda says they did recognize that the album had some charm but they were pissed and they really felt like it was going to tank them well, guess what happens next? It shoots to number one and sells Surprise! a million copies. And they're like, actually, we like it now. <laughs> well, but to be fair, it doesn't shoot to number one right away. I think it took, what, like 10 months from release to get to number one? It wasn't an overnight it success. Time. It took time, yeah. Yeah, the Saturday Night Live performance certainly helped. And Tom alluded to it earlier. This was the very early days of MTV. They shot a promotional clip, a.k.a. a music video, for We Got the Beat, I want to say was the first one. I think the first one was... No, the first one was Our Lips Are Sealed, and they said that they did it because the production company that was connected to the IRS records had a... They had a contract to do a police like promotional thing like a hey the neighborhood police are pretty great huh like it's the rapid cop type no thing. no 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 hold on you, you're you're going astray it was the police it's the police band the band it's they had leftover budget from a police video the police that makes a lot more sense. yes you're right that that is what i heard i have it was also been buying some 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 beverages so can, can we still, forgive me can for we that. stick with the actual like police yeah, and uniform story like it's i like want to go with that one you should have let me go it would have been great like i'm sounding like a fucking idiot it'd been awesome <laughs> but they had an extra six thousand right, right, dollars right. and they made the video for uh, and to hear our lips are sealed and it's a pretty simple video by modern standards, I guess. And they're just driving around in a convertible through L.A. They're playing like in a fountain or whatever. I just can't believe I didn't put that together. The fucking police. <laughs> I was like, wow, the cops had a big enough budget to make a fucking video for themselves that they like had 6000 extra dollars? <laughs> I mean, I know police budgets are fucking bloated, but Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> fucking community stop, drop, and yeah, roll program. I'm a <laughs> moron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> If you see something, say something. <laughs> so they didn't understand the importance of making this video. They sincerely thought it was a waste of time. But as we all know, MTV became a huge cultural phenomenon. And they didn't have, in the early days especially, they didn't have that many videos. So they had this they one. They were looking for we And they played it rights. constantly. Because I don't know if we talked about when this was released, but this was... 81? 81, right? Yeah. And MTV started in like May of 81 or something yeah. like wow. that. Wow. Correct. It's the So they were looking for content. Days, yeah. yeah. Well, because we, we've talked before on this podcast about how certain people were able to have foresight. There, there's kind of two groups I see in the MTV world. One, let's call them just lucky, maybe, because they had clips ready to go that were more than just clips of people performing. And I think of the once-in-a-lifetime clip from Talking Heads. I love Talking Heads, but I never heard a story about them having the foresight to prepare that for MTV. I think they made it. It was there. They were just being weird. Got, they were being weird. It is super weird. And they got tons of play because there just wasn't a lot of content, right? And then there's this other set of artists, like Madonna is a great example, who saw the how they could use this right. tool to enhance their thing, and they used it beautifully, right? Rob, Rob, just as a question and for fun, have you ever seen the Cross-Eyed and Painless video? Yes. That is also very weird and fun. Very weird. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, actually, it's funny because I think that almost never got played because I only saw that on like a Talking Heads video compilation that I had a VHS of. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've never seen that, and I was definitely watching MTV uh, to an unhealthy degree. Uh, I probably yeah. didn't see it until like 2000. Yeah, it has like a pop and lock guy in it. Yeah, he he crushes. Yeah. Okay, where were we? There's also a weird switchblade scene where a guy does a weird knife thing, like a mime. It's very creepy. I'll watch it when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's how the record came together. Ultimately, it did take off with the help of MTV, probably with that Saturday Night Live, Night Live performance, which wasn't amazing, but it's still okay. I was making a little fun. They did. They often like to reminisce about how messed up they were on Saturday Night Live and how that was indicative of their approach to partying at the time. But I think we should segue into talking about some of these tunes. Oh, yeah. Let's do, do this it. thing. So I think the first song we want to talk about is the first song on their record. It is called Our Lips Are Sealed. <laughs> I don't know if this is just me assigning this later in life, but this song sounds so L.A. to me. And that the guitar that's in there very prominently, the driving bass line, it just sounds super L.A. and kind of bright, effervescent. It's it's a damn good pop it's, song. It's fun. It's, it's super fun. Yeah, song. I had never heard this one. Again, wow! Really? Yeah, I, I what? didn't. I didn't know this song. And Adam's parents only listened to Billy Joel right. growing up. He did not have. <laughs> yeah, dude, they had plenty of Zappa records in the, the house. Go Go's were banned. <laughs> the Winter Brothers projects only. <laughs> but yeah, th- this was new to me, and I, I looked and I saw that it's got you know fifty eight million downloads, and I was like, oh, I suppose this was a hit I've never yeah, heard, yeah. and I get it. This this is a great great opening track for the album. I, too. I have a little secret to to to. I didn't know what the fuck they were saying my whole life. I had never seen this song and title and print. I just heard it on the. I I didn't know what the hook was. It's definitely a song I had heard many times, but I can't say I was uber familiar with its ins and outs. But when I heard it, I recognized it. I think it's the best written song on the album. And I do think it's produced as pop perfection. I think everything about it, it's kind of, it has a lot of pop cliches in it, no doubt about it, but they're just done really effectively. And I think the writing is good enough and the hook is memorable enough that it really works. This is the one we actually talked about this song on the specials episode because Jane Weedlin, when they were in UK, had a relationship with Terry Hall from the specials, the lead singer or one of the singers from the specials. And he had a fiance at the time, huge surprise. But they carried on for some time. They stayed in touch after she came back to L.A., and he wrote her a letter with some unfinished lyrics. So he gets a co-writing credit on this one. Uh-huh. Probably by far the most money he made off of music was from this song. <laughs> All the poor specials. <laughs> I agree. So <laughs> I still like that. That record was fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I don't know if you guys noticed. Did you guys look at the chord chart for this or play around with it? I did not. It's kind of weird. It's a little weird. Yeah, definitely. Only major yeah. chords. Well, that's fun. Oh. It's kind of like Because I made a note that at the 36 second mark, there's a chord that feels odd, but it works. 
Yeah, it like does all the Roman numerals, but they're all major. Right, that's wild. You're talking about the part where it gets to the doesn't matter what they say. Yeah, it's weird. And they hit that because that is weird. It stands out and they kind of they hit, hit the third. They know it's weird. It's a major they, they three. They hit it again yeah, and exactly. again and again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a major three. It's like a Nirvana move. It shows up in a lot of Nirvana songs later, too. It's fun. Yeah, it's cool. There's a flat six major. Yeah, it's it's cool and unconventional while being this very poppy mm-hmm. song that has a lot of cliches in it. I do think that they are at their best. I alluded to this earlier. They're at their best when they speak in the plural and when they are almost inviting you in. To this caravan to the cult. of yeah, yeah. that they have, and I appreciated that on this song. Yeah, it's interesting too because, like, it is so bright and like effervescent, as you've said, Tom. So the the, the idea that song one side one would be all major chords, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> a song about fucking somebody else's fiance in secret. We're not going to talk about it. Our lips are sealed. Oh, I get it now. You know, I don't look at lyrics, so but I it get also it. Thank feels you. very relevant to the female composition of their band the idea that there's got there's always going to be gossip Gossip, if you're a female in the public eye there's that kind of gossip around so it just feels like a signature song in that sense i think the background vocals are very tasty on this one very tasty Definitely. And they even do a little piano overdub, which I think I think they only do one other time. They they use it kind of sparingly throughout the record, but I think it's very nicely done. They clearly spent time on this production specifically, and I think it really benefits from that. Love the bridge. And it has a proper bridge. Proper bridge, very hip. Yeah. At 132, are we talking about the same thing? Yep. Yeah. Hush the Hush My, my Darling. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is Jane Wideland singing for that part. And maybe that's why it sounds so nice. Apparently <laughs> later on. She said, hey, I write a bunch of songs. I wrote this song. I want to sing the song. And the band was like, fuck no. You're not singing your song? What are you talking about? Belinda's the lead singer. She was oh, like, yeah, but I geez. wanted to sing. I actually have a pretty good voice. That happened. But then I heard the thing that really made her quit was shortly after that, after they had done the third record, where pretty much the same songwriting setup that they had always done, which is mostly her and Charlotte either collaborating or writing individually for the most part. They then said, hey, this publishing thing is screwing us up. We should all take credit for all the songs. And she was like, we can do that for the next album. But we already did all the work for this album. That feels unfair. And they said, no, we already decided without you. And she quit. Damn. Yep. Can't blame you. Yeah, but there, you know, Tom alluded to it at the top. But the fact, and few bands have the foresight to talk about splits and royalties and songwriting credits sure. from the top. And I almost wonder, I don't know this for sure, pure speculation, but given that IRS Records also was involved in R.E.M.'s early career, I wonder if they nudged them, because recall that R.E.M. did solve this problem by taking joint credit on every single song from day one. I just Part of me wonders if Miles Copeland said that would be a good idea. Hey, I've, I've taken some learnings from my yeah, prior because, projects. Because right. what happens, right, is that as this record's going to number one, yeah, Gina Shock's getting a paycheck, obviously, for being in this band, but Jane Weedland is getting a way bigger paycheck because they want We Got the Beat in every song everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the one of the stories, is that Gina Shock was in the management office and saw the check oh, that Charlotte was God. getting. And she was like, what the fuck? And she's like, yeah, she wrote the biggest hit on the album. That's what happens when you write the biggest hit she on the album. She gets the songwriting money. She gets the songwriting right. money, which is probably 10x what you're getting as the just the drummer. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways royalties can work, but it, but the gist of it for the listeners would be that normally the royalties are divided into songwriting credits and publishing credits. And 
I'm not sure if the Gogo and maybe performance royalties as well as a third count, but they're all individual counts. So if you're a sole songwriter, you're taking 50% or at least a third off the table instantly, and you're probably getting a piece of those other yep. cuts as well. Okay. Well, it's a great song. I'm glad we all agree. There's one one subtle thing that, that I appreciated from a production standpoint is after the bridge, about halfway through, add claps after the breakdown. I didn't catch that. Yeah, there, there's like a clapping thing. And it's not necessarily on the snare hits, but there's just like an additional clapping as a, a percussion thing. And it's cool because it just kind of moves the song along as you continue adding cool stuff. So yeah, This band a, seems like ripe for claps. They do. <laughs> this just is a very a bunch of people up on stage yes. clapping and having a good time. But to hear them tell it, this is not their... This was not their aesthetic. That's that's one of the things I found surprising. They, I think they knew they were moving in a pop direction, but they still went into the studio thinking of themselves as an awesome punk band, as the female Buzzcocks or something like that. So did they inadvertently invent pop punk? This is barely punk, though. I mean, is there pop? It's barely punk. This is more surf than punk, actually. In all honesty, yes. though, but what is punk except for an aesthetic and a disdain for proficiency or musicianship? Like, that's what punk is. I'm not calling them out. I'm just pointing yeah. out that it sounds like some of these pop accoutrement were supplied by the producer. Fair sure. enough. Yeah. yeah. But the basis of these songs are still pretty damn poppy. Agreed. I'm not trying to take away credit. I think the song's great. It's a very well-composed, unconventional, but really effective pop song. And it's also produced great. Yes. Also produced great. Rolling right along. The next song we're going to talk about is track number two, How Much More. <laughs> So I have a question. Is that Charlotte or Jane singing a doubled lead part or is that two Belindas? That's one of my questions on this one because this has a very gang vocal feel to it. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that is Belinda not being able to perfectly double herself or if that is another of the singers doing a part that then diverges later. I thought it was two different voices, just especially when they crack off there, I guess, as it reaches the end of the line. Or the... No, there are definitely some backing vocals, what you're talking about, where they sing not at the same time even. I think it's like in the pre-chorus, but maybe Tom's talking about the verse. I'm talking about in the verse, but the divergence comes at the end of the verse as well. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Belinda Carlisle has a an aesthetic with her doubling that is very imperfect and very much sounds like a group vocal as opposed to we talked about this a bit on the electric warrior t-rex episode where he did a great thing where he imperfectly doubled himself and it worked in a way to give it a cool vibe almost sounds like chorus yes right but with belinda carlisle it sounds like a gang vocal mm. of many people right. there's a lot of times where okay. it just sounds like that she's just shouting vocals at you 
and there's two of her shouting vocals at you, and it doesn't sound matched up. There's some flamming. Ooh, flam. Flamming. Yeah, you like great, that? Some flamming. Great term. Love a flam. I feel like this could have been a hit. This is my favorite song that I discovered this week. It's also in the same vein of what we talked about, pop candy, but a lot of surf energy here. Yeah. Right? And we already mentioned surf, and I'm going to mention it probably again. It feels more surf than punk, and it kind of made me wonder what is the connection between surf rock and punk rock. Never quite drew that line before, but there are some similarities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. My note on this is I bet Rob loves the song. That was my one note. Cause I, it's got a lot of floor time. It's almost like you guys have known each other for 25 <laughs> years. It sound like an insult. No, it's not an insult. <laughs> I mean, it's I bet I bet Rob loves this song. Yeah, you're right. I love the little, I love the drum beat behind the kind of pre-chorus, the "How much more can I take?" Yes. part. I just think the drums are really, we, we, you know, we talked about it on previous podcasts. The drums feel like an active part of the writing process to me. Amidst songs that don't have a ton of differentiation in the parts, the drums feel like her brain is creatively engaged consistently when they're arranging the songs. I like that. Well, and as stated before, Gina Shock was the workhorse of the band who was like, run it again, let's let's make it right, let's make it right. It seems like she was very much the leader in the room. And being the leader in the room, even if you're not the songwriter... There's a lot of value in that, which, again, not to get too much on the downfall of the Go-Go's side of things, but when later on she was minimized in her role, I felt for her yeah. that they were basically saying, what was the the quote that when they eventually broke up the band, Belinda Carlisle and uh, Charlotte came to them and said, she's the voice and I write the songs and we're leaving, so there's no more band. And I could see Gina Shock being like, wait Fuck a second. You. Like, yeah. yeah, what are you talking about? I made this work. Sure, sure. I am an instrumental part of the sound. And I mean, this is maybe more of a statement about drummers, but I think in a, a pretty direct way, like the band is the drummer, right? Like the drummer's personality is a huge part of what makes any band sound the way it sounds. Sure. Especially somebody with a. I mean, not a super punk aesthetic, but at least a punk sure. adjacent aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, and these punk are these are definitely punk. like drum forward mixes and drummy songs. Yeah, we talked about driving. It's all the drums. Yeah, sure. But you said punk adjacent, and I was just thinking, like, when in the writing and recording process did they ever look around and say, "We're not a punk band, guys"? Like, I'm picturing like <laughs> the Deftones wrote Mbop. Like, when they got finished recording it, would they be like, "Oh, we're not a sludge metal band"? <laughs> <laughs> like it's well part of that was when they wrote we got the beat and that was one of the reasons why i believe the original bass player was kind of rebelling against that more poppy sound because we got the beat is a pop song it is just a good pop song and she was more like i want to be punk and I can see that you're going in this direction. Clear divergence. This right. is the song that people are responding to, and mm -hmm. you're yeah, responding. Right. People responding to that and writing more songs like that. And I don't want to be that. I want to be more true to my punk roots. Which talk about a bad financial decision. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think you have a point, but you also have to keep in mind that they were just playing these songs live at lightning speed. Like maybe listeners can't appreciate as much as the people in this room might be able to, that tempo makes a huge difference. 
and we've already referenced our old, our old and favorite band, The Chop, but I'm I'm tempted to think of The Chop with Love, which we then created as The Chop with Love reprise and turned into a jazz song pretty much just by slowing it down. Yeah, yeah, good, very, yeah, yeah, sure. Some major seven chords. We put some major seven chords in there. Just added some sevens yeah, in there yeah. and slowed it down. Done. It wasn't that big a change. Well, and we also had the problem that I'm sure that they had, which was lack of confidence in our musical ability and nervousness on stage, which leads to increased tempo. Faster, Especially right. me as the drummer. I was. I look back on some of those recordings. I'm playing at late. You would have thought I had a Coke problem. I was drunk. <laughs> but I thought I was on cocaine. Every song is just 30% faster than it should have been. And it's hard to play good at 30% faster than you should be playing the song. But I could see why a producer was like, slow down, slow everything down. And then they heard it and were like, this is not what got us here. Let's speed it back up. Right. But they couldn't really change it enough. What I heard about the, even the final, final product that we listened to was they still didn't like it. They still did not feel like it was representative of what they were playing on stage. But let me just say this, too. Take the cocaine or even the punk music out of it for a second. I think most producers would be do well to start with the instruction, slow it down, guys, in any genre because of that nervous energy thing of either being in the studio sure. or how it feels live or whatever recordings are meant to be listened to cherished. They're just a different product right, than, than a live show. Right? And if you're in a band like spoon is a great example, that drummer is a human metronome. He does not vary. He is dead on the beat all the time. Most bands aren't like that. Most bands are going to speed up naturally over the course sure. of the song. So you don't want to start too fast and then speed up to way too fast. That's just going to be a train wreck. Agreed. Okay. I thought it was a cool song. Let's move on to a different flavor. The next song we're going to talk about is called This Town. I wanted to like this one so much. Like right away, it kicks in with that like eight bar, the bar eight bar six thing. We're like, oh man, we got something interesting here. They got that cool surf riff. And then, oh God, fuck, does it go down? Dude, they should have worked way harder on these lyrics. <laughs> yeah, totally. These are embarrassing, yeah, totally. especially the chorus. And the first line is you, brutal, dude. When they get to this pause town as a bridge. <laughs> I literally laughed out loud. It's so bad. It's pretty bad. And it's also aggressively kind of fuck you to the audience. What do they say? Like, you'd come here if you were cool enough. Like, you'd come here if you could make it, but you can't. So fuck you. Right, we did it. Right. 
<laughs> we got it. You live in California. Yeah, I, I found this one to be definitely the low point of the album for me. I always think, and Adam, I'm going to I'm gonna give a, a diss that Rob has given in the past for an old song that we used to do in our Gelder Oof. days. Oh, okay, I'm scared. There was the song, These Things. Oh, God. And, and Rob, I remember the biggest diss was, he sh- like, you should just call this song This Stuff. And I was like, oh, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's yeah. Terrible. Like, this town is so black. Just that. Yeah. Okay, in our defense, they were 23 when they wrote this song. We were 16 when we wrote that shitty song. That's a fair it point. Did, it little, did yeah. kind of remind me of yes. that. I'm not going to lie. It was a good <laughs> it. <laughs> It's like... Hey, well, you guys added a lot of harmony and you know some other stuff to it, but at, at its core, I couldn't get past this this lyric. And and this is th- this is similar. And also, it just has less of the things that I think make them good. It had le- a little less of the driving beat. It did have some surfiness, and then Belinda to me is mostly alone. There's less backing vocals on this one. Her limitations are kind of laid bare. is is an extra problem. I appreciated with this one at least they changed up the sound. So it's not a just a re. It's like a drum echo thing or yeah, something. Yeah, but just the overall feel. I, they didn't stick. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah. With every other up tempo, so I, I appreciated this. Maybe this felt like a swing. They're like, hey, we're gonna switch things up a bit. Yeah, I, I don't think they succeeded very well, but I do appreciate it. At least changed up the vibe of a lot of the super pop. Yeah, I didn't think about that. It's like it's very super pop, and then this song is like alternating meter minor key yeah yeah again they they had something rob you've said it before too where like they had they had an idea but they didn't fully execute on it so i think there's something here but it's just not it's it's underbaked yeah i agree it's it's the lyrics for me that really like pull it out i think the rest of it is actually a nice little tune like you guys are saying but the lyrics just like throw me out of it especially this town (laughs) i just think that for an album like this where the thing that it has going for it is a vibe breaking from that vibe. You have to do it really well. I feel like they do it well on a different song that we're going to talk about later, but this song was not the song to break the vibe. I would have preferred another poppy up tempo, happy party song than this one. It just didn't do it for me, especially the way that they have it constructed as the last song on side one of right. an LP. Oh, that's interesting. It doesn't right fit well that. for that. You're not like yeah. excited to put on side two, which you should be excited to put on side two because some killers on side two, but I it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So that brings us to, I think we should transition into side two. And the next song we're going to talk about, We Got the Beat. say with that was before we get into the specific song i think the sequencing on this is really good 
they had a really good sense of it. I think they started with a really strong song. They followed it up with another strong pop song, and they start side two with a really strong Killer. song too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just yep. feel like that's something we complain about sometimes. That in retrospect, the major hit is like buried as track nine or something. You know, some deep cut. And again, maybe this is a side effect of them having played a lot of live shows. Maybe, I, right. I, I can, I can. Yeah, it's easy to see the draw of like, oh, I want this to feel like a like a go-go show, right? And, and and to that end, you know your big songs, you sort of want to put those at, at places where people either, they're easy to get to and easy to remember. Totally. Well, so contrary to what was said earlier, I like this song. I don't like it as much as my lips are, our lips are sealed, rather. But I do still think it really works as a pop song. Of course, I've heard it a few too many times. But I think the production elevates what is a simple song? And one of the things I wanted to call out, speaking of the live show thing, was the drum breakdown, where they're just singing over the drums, clearly designed or even arranged during live shows, right? But you could see how that used to kill for them. Sometimes those kinds of tricks don't transfer over to the record. I think in this case, it really does. It still feels like it would work in a dance club today. Mm-hmm. We got the beat. Oh, this is pop perfection. I really dig this song. The bass line is fantastic on this song. It's driving. It is simple, but very additive. And in general, I think that it has a driving aspect to it. You can't listen to this song. This is not the snifter a brand new no, by no. the fireplace song. This is a yeah. party song. And they knew what they were, they knew their audience, they knew what they were trying to do have a party, have fun. It gets their whole vibe across. And again, speaking in the plural, it's very come and have fun with us. I will say that we got the beat. It's a great chorus. They got the beat. It's a great chorus. Kids got the beat. It's fucking terrible. I don't know why they did that. They should not have done. Kids got the beat. That's what they say? Yeah. I didn't realize that. The second chorus. The second chorus. Because they're talking about like, oh, the kids are walking home from school. And then they say, they got the beat. Kids got the beat. Kids got the beat. Kids got the beat. You know, it's a flaw. I would have gone like, she got the beat. He got the beat. Exactly. Something that is a little bit more euphonious than kids got the beat. They predicted the kids. But maybe, but here's the thing. That's sort of the charm of the band in general, right? Is that like, they're not a corporate machine entity. So like, you know, they have some of these like choices that are, you know, sure. You know, the corporate machine would have been like, you know, kids got the beat pretty weird. Yeah. I'm not saying they got to go full on into the corporate machine, but the producer would have been like, Hey, Can you just not say yeah, that. How word? about not that? <laughs> yeah. How about you? They again, that would work. I will say the producer though, it is clear. He had a strong sense of what songs he thought were winners because both of this, we got the beat and our lips are sealed, 
do seem to have a slight cut above production quality. Like there's like a cars thing a little bit. Like there's just a little more doubling. There's a little more like things instead of putting an effect on something, something happens again and then it's hard panned. It's like, or the guitar just Mm -hmm. changes. There's like, and that, that simple piano overdub came up again in this. Sure. Her hitting a chord, eighth notes. Yeah. Kind of thing. It's just little bells and whistles. Like he knows this is uh, one of the better tunes. Definitely. uh, But this also is one that they had recorded previously. Sure. Good call. And so they have a recording of record to listen back to and say, what could we have done better? Yeah, great. I'm sure work, everybody right. in this room has listened to a recording that you've made Poured and over. been like, oh man, now that it's printed on fucking vinyl, so clear I should have changed I... that. That's yeah. so clear I should have changed that. We should slow it down and then speed it up again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the song where I feel like Belinda Carlisle does the affectation that I really don't like. She has a bit more... Valley Girl was what I wrote down. Yeah. I think that she originally sung this song when she was a much worse singer. And then when they re-recorded it, I think she reverted back to her previous worse singer vibe. Mm. And then... maybe. Because she doesn't really do that on a lot of the other songs. I think it's fair, but it is worth mentioning that she is, in fact, a Valley Girl. There you go. Sure. Yes. But if you, there were some of those early shows where she's doing the English punk thing. The kind of, let me give you that faux British affectation Dude, if you, right. if you don't like this, you're going to hate the Golden Girls affect on talk show. <laughs> 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 okay. Well, it's funny because when we're taking our little beer break phil mentioned that he likes all songs with the key change there is a brief key change in this song that's right. <laughs> i wrote that down yeah for pop perfection that's kind of unlikely it happens at 108 You gotta have a key change. Yeah, they packed that into like a two minute and 36 second song. <laughs> right, exactly. yeah, yeah, good, good. Okay. I think we can move on to the last song on our focus list. It's called Automatic. This was the song, the feel change song. This was yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I liked this too. This I liked it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely different than the other songs. Their yep. main riff. It's more goth. Reminded me Ooh, a little more a of the good... Sushi Sue stuff. Yeah. It's the only song that's credited solely to Jane Weedlin. And I know she is public about having struggled with depression and stuff. It just felt darker. Yeah, way I mean way darker. Well, I, well the other one that was really bad was pretty dark too. Okay, so we talk about the Hall & Oates effect, 
where they do something, where they say something in the material and then nothing happens, mm-hmm. or they don't do the thing they just mentioned. So I give this song credit for saying the word stop and then stopping the song. <laughs> for a substantial amount oh, yeah. of time. It happens the two different time times. Yeah, and it's, yeah. yeah, the second time. They, yeah, but they do it... Be- I'll allow the two-timer because they do it for different amounts of time. Yes. The second amount of time is an excessive amount of time. And when it comes back in, it's really cool. And it comes back in with the whole lot of love pre-reverb where you kind of hear the vocal yeah, reverb yeah, yeah, before yeah. it comes back in. Good yeah. call. Yeah, good, and I'm good. wondering cool. if that is an effect that they specifically dialed in or an artifact of I, I would guess they coming in on the in. tape at or different like times. I don't know, but it sounds right. cool. It's very I, cool. It's got to be cool live too, like the stops. Oh yeah, you could do a lot. Very dark room, yeah. Yeah. Very hard to time out. I would imagine. (laughs) But this was definitely the one that I was like, "Oh, this is hypnotic. This is cool. This." sounds like if there was a band that just sounded like this, I would like that band. For a departure song, they wandered into different waters than they normally tread in, and they did it very well. And I was like, yeah, I would totally listen to a band that just sounds like this. They did They did something cool, too. There's no hi-hat on this song. Oh, that is interesting. I think yeah. they're hitting Tons the, of space. I think they're hitting the hi-hat stand. It's like... Mm, interesting. There's interesting. a clicking... It's not a hi hat, yeah, but it's yeah, hitting yeah. on the 16s. Huh. Huh. I feel like I've gotten shit for saying I like the drummer, but I think the drummer's are really yeah, good. Yeah, she's I think cool. That, yeah. that she added a lot of very tasty things on this overall album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This song, not to shamelessly plug my project Mega, but this song reminds me of like the songwriting style of Chris Mega. Uh, in the band like it has a lot of like very clear like this thing is playing a arpeggio that spells out the chords and it kind of just does it in this way that's just a little nuanced and then it's just like the grid the grid is very much there it's very gridded but in a in like a way that is like hypnotic and fun go listen to mega everybody we'll link it in actually actually better better yet Let's see if Alan agrees. Let's never mention this and just okay. see if he writes into the mailbag to, All right. to, to, to boosh me. <laughs> I was going to say it's funny because in the mailbag today, we have a listener. I actually cut this part out because I didn't want to put it on air, but you forced my hand, Phil, that he complimented the bumper music at the end of the podcast and asked oh, about shit. it. Oh, yeah. shit, hey. So I wrote him back and told him it was mega, Phil and Alan's band, of course, and they should go listen, naturally. And... I told him that he, we were going to read some of his other comments on today's show. So now he's listening, and I assumed he was going to think that I prompted you with that information. Oh, wow. No, definitely no. not. It happens serendipitously. Wow, no, I, I hear that. I hear that. Actually, it does. I'm, I don't. <laughs> I agree. I don't think it's a far cry from some of the material I've heard you guys play. Yeah. I will point out that there are two songs that we did not touch on on our focus list. My favorite find on the album was Lust to Love. I actually really like that song. I thought it was really cool and like poppy. And then before I listened to the album, I was just looking at the track list and I saw skid marks on my heart. And I was like, are you doing like a Waylon Jennings song? Like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> not what I thought it was going to be at all. It's not a, a laid back country it song. It should be a country song. And Absolutely. There are country singers out there that are pissed off that that title is now taken. That's a great country <laughs> music title. Ruining <laughs> other genres. Okay. 
I think we've talked quite enough about the Go-Go's. As we have already alluded to in this podcast, they shot to stardom eventually. As this record took off, they toured extensively. They recorded two other albums, and they had a hit on the second album called Vacation, which I think everyone here would probably All recognize. All sure, sure. Right. And another kind of iconic music video that I remembered of them in ballerina outfits surfing or, you know, water skiing maybe. Anyway, but then after that third album, basically shortly after that third album, they broke up. They tried it with replacement members. It couldn't work. And they stayed broken up for a long time. Belinda Carlisle went on to have her own solo career. Heaven is a Place on Earth was her big hit. And eventually, I think they did reform or something and continue to tour, as, as Tom said, was mentioned in the documentary. So they seem like they've kind of patched things up at this point. Perhaps they'll be coming to a town near you soon. But okay, it's time for the most exciting part of the podcast, where we vote. Is this album, Beauty and the Beat, I actually think it's a lovely title too, by the way. Agreed. Is it a must listen before you die, Tom? I'm going to touch on what is probably a third rail topic that we have not touched on, which is if these were all dudes, would anybody give a shit about this at all? I think the answer is no. Nobody would give a shit about this if they were all dudes. But they're not. They are the highest-selling all-female group of all time. Good for them. Who, who wrote and produced and played all their yeah. own instruments. Good for them. I think you got to listen to it, if nothing more than just for that. And again, watching a documentary about them, the amount of female artists that said, this directly inspired me to see that I could do the same thing that had traditionally been done by men in music. Undeniable. I think you got to listen to it. And it's a fun listen. It's definitely not, it's not a slog. It's a fun listen. Yeah, I'll echo some of what Tom said. So I didn't finish the documentary, and I was actually going to mention that I don't know a lot of the downstream impact that they had. I assumed that they wouldn't kind of be a dead end just because of, of them being the first. And I also enjoyed the week as well. This was a bit of a... A surprise to me. Again, I went into it thinking it was going to be like a, a Britney Spears kind of overproduced thing, but I think they have a very organic feel. They have a very organic nature. There was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all the things we associate with male groups from the 70s and, and 80s. Uh, so it's fun to see that the women got in there, mixed it up a bit as well. So I'm going to say, yeah, you need to listen to this. It's a yes for me. I, I do think one of the great parts of that documentary is I think it was the guy from IRS Records, uh, Stuart Copeland's brother, talking about being in the studio with them, and they got done recording. And they're like, all right, let's go get fucking laid. And he's like, what? And they're like, yeah, we're going to go hit the town and do some coke and get laid. And he's like, oh, well, all right, good for you have, have, a good, have a good night. <laughs> it's also a yes for me. I uh, I thought it was a great listen this week. I know I sort of canned it at the top, but it's really fun. I mean, it's a really fun set of songs, fun energy. I also feel like this is a great lesson. Or this is a great record to know, like for your your for your your like your playlists, right? Like you can mix it up with some 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 go gos, some B list yeah, go go right, songs, right. right? And you're like. Your road trip playlist. Your playlist. I'm gonna make it unanimous. I think it's a yes. It's an easy yes for all the reasons we normally said and that have already been said. It was a fun listen. It was an enjoyable listen. That's not enough to make it a must listen, but I do think it inspired quite a bit. I like these ladies, Moxie, all that stuff. But the real important thing to me is where does it fit in the musical canon? It's a debut record. It comes out strong. 
I think it fits very nicely in the history of pop music generally, which I very much appreciate when it's done well. This does it well in many cases, and it inspired so many other women, I think, to pick up instruments and make a lot of great music. So very, very important. You're on the list, Go-Go's. Congratulations. Nice work. Okay. What's next? Shall we open up the old mailbag, perhaps? I'll allow it. Let's do it. <laughs> it's <laughs> thrilling, by by the way, to see both the mailbag and the albinator in the same room. Yeah, yeah I got to yeah, tell yeah, you, yeah, this, yeah, it's yeah. really Their quite exciting. Their physical presences are quite imposing. Yes. We had to bring them here together on a Grinch sled. They're emitting this energy, this, oh, yeah. this warmth. Yeah, I can actually, I can been, hear it. Yeah, oscillating just... <laughs> them, them, oscillating in one another's presence. <laughs> okay, so we have some dispatches from our lovely fans here that I wanted to uh, to read to you. <laughs> just some business papers, listeners. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Kevin from San Diego writes. Just wanted to reach out to express some appreciation for you guys' show. I started listening about two months ago and have made my way through almost all of the episodes so far. In my opinion, the best part of the pod is the obvious friendship that you guys have. It's infectious as shit to listen to, the banter, and camaraderie. Do my friends in the room want to comment on that at all? Tom was expressing hate <laughs> from the other room. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's urinating. Keeping it classy uh, as we're to go on rounded out here. I agree. Yeah. I enjoy our camaraderie. This has been a fantastic journey with you guys. So thank you. It's and thank nice. you, Kevin. I assume yeah. you mean the entire the entirety of our lives, because that's how long we've been hanging out pretty much. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah. Agreed. You guys are great. I love you. Second best part of the show are the frequent references to the greatest American rock band of all time. Fish. Fish. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Boo! I was queued up for you, Phil. That was, that's perfect. <laughs> he goes on to say, I was totally surprised by the lack of fish references on the most recent episode about talking heads. We're, we taped these a little ahead, I should say. Arguably the best Halloween set of all time, their 1996 cover of Remain in Light. Pause for Phil's commentary. Oh, I wrote that note to myself. <laughs> Like, I, damn, I, I agree that 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 remain in light uh set rips and it's it's fun it's always fun when cross-eyed and painless you know re-emerges rob we we were together at a show we went to the new yes. year's show yeah and cross-eyed and painless emerged at like three o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah, that was awesome it was a bright spot in a long long Ooh. set of yeah i don't remember much else but <laughs> Yeah, they're great. Fish is great. We feel like we talk about them a little too much. You know, I think compared to Phil, we're casual fish fans, and then Phil yeah. compared to fish heads is a casual fish fan. I think that's right. So there's wow. many there's many yeah, levels many here, levels. I think, is the challenge, right? Yeah, they're fun to talk about, certainly, and they are a great American rock band. Anyway, he says, thanks for the laughs, and keep up the good work, hoping for a Zappa or a Pavement episode in the future. Well, I don't know if Pavement's on the list. They are. Two records. Oh, I'm a fan of Pavement. So yeah. Me too. Me too. I'm sure we'll get to those. Zappa has two records on the list as well, I believe. Okay, uh, I have another one. Chris from Jacksonville writes, Gentlemen, comma. Wrong. Right away. Right away wrong. I recently discovered your podcast and have a binge listening. It's great. Thank you. Concerning the B-52s. Uh-oh. Thank you, Tony. Whoa. For your discernment and good taste. Shots fired wow for those who don't know tony is a very very close friend of our friend adam over here yeah now we absolutely. all know tony from school and 
for many years, but I would say, Adam, you spent the most time with Tony over the years. So you can pass this along to him. I will absolutely. He's getting a compliment from Florida. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. (laughs) I was in college during the 1980s. At the time, the radio airways were saturated with bands like ACDC and Van Halen. In other words, great bands. (laughs) It might be difficult to fathom how different, raw, and refreshing the B-52s were when they arrived on the scene. I did attend dorm parties with hot lava blasting. They were unforgettable. The novelty of Rock Lobster might be lost through the echoes of time, but I still crank up those songs and smile and sing along. That was one of my regrets, looking back. I I think I, I voted no. I wish I had voted yes just for the sheer weirdness i also regret listening to that album (laughs) (laughs) no it's not that bad (laughs) i think i was harshest maybe on that episode i can't really remember you came in pretty hot i came in pretty hot you know here's the thing i because i normally am a proponent of weird music so part of me wants to say i regret it i think maybe i was just expecting something different but maybe i'll you know who knows maybe i'll revisit it You, you know also as time as time you know wears on we might see that there's a seasonal impact maybe maybe we recorded at a at a a particularly critical time of the season, you know, where in this lovely summer. That might have been during the time where Rob was living in Thailand and never got to see the sun. It might have been that period of time where Rob was just fucking angry and depressed and everything. Yeah. Might have been. I hate everybody. I hate music. I was in a low T state. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this one's going to be a little multimedia, uh, which is rare for us, but... Oh, God, I'm horrified. Listener Steve pointed us, helpfully, to something that recently came from the Steely Dan archives. Oh, shit. It's a jingle for the beer brand Schlitz, which younger listeners probably won't even know what that is. And this is what I read about it before we play it. They Steely Dan agreed to writing this bit of marketing melody under the conditions that Schlitz take the jingle as is. And the quote is, as we were doing it, somebody came by from the Schlitz ad agency. You know, a guy with a powder blue sweater tied around his neck and quite literally a stopwatch in his hand. He walked into the control room and thought he was going to take over. And that was not going to happen. He started asking questions about the song. And Donald Fagan said aloud to me, do you have your hand near the red button? Then he addressed the ad guy. If you say another word about this song, we're just going to erase it. <laughs> so the guy left. The always amenable fucking Donald Fagan. Yes. <laughs> Donald Fagan. And here is that song. When I get home from a hard day's work, Yo cojo por todos los que puedo. he says he likes to grab for all the gusto he can get. Because you only go around one time. The jingle 
was rejected. <laughs> is that the most overproduced jingle of all time? Oh my God. <laughs> wow. It's just so Marley Dan. So Steely Dan. Yeah, absolutely. When he blows out the harmonies the guitar, for that. That for the acoustic part. guitar work was remarkable. Yeah. My God. That <laughs> yeah, was how could we work a key change big. into this jingle? <laughs> yo, yo, question though. Why did they, why did they cast the Noid for the... For Spanish the, Noid? Yeah, Spanish Noid. That's part yeah, of the reason they rejected it is because they were like, ah, there's like a Hispanic guy talking in it. We can't have that. Remarkable. Thank you. Who was who was the? Uh, that was listener Steve. Listener Steve. Thank you for bringing that at least to my attention. Agreed. That's amazing. Thank you sincerely for bringing that to our attention. That was great. Agreed. During the can't buy a thrill sessions too, and it sounds a little bit more advanced. It sounds like where they were going with their sound. They really stretched right. on that jingle. Wow. <laughs> right, right. I don't know how many guys took solos on yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. The 37 drum tracks that they didn't use. So, like, we brought this guy in for a saxophone solo. What the fuck is this? This is fucking, what is he doing here? <laughs> okay. So, as you can see, listener Steve and other listeners, that was oh, a true joy was, for yeah, us. That's great. Thank yes, you so much. If you have more Steely Dan information <laughs> that we don't know about, we would love to to hear that or anything you want to tell us did we get it right about the go-go's did we get it wrong did we miss some context or about any of the past episodes please write us let us know we love to hear from you we love to learn 1001 album complaints at gmail.com send it our way and now i believe we're gonna throw it on over to tom who's ponied up next to the albinator i do i have the albinator here it is dressed in a kind of diy outfit and has done a surprising amount of drugs in the last 24 hours. It is just much less wholesome eyes. than I yeah. recall the Albinator being. You know, like just enough heroin to get you down and just enough coke to get you back, and it's ready to spin that wheel. So, without any further ado, drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to. The album is Back to Mystery City. I love this album title. And the band is Hanoi Rocks. I love that name a lot less than the album title name. <laughs> I think that they're 80s cock rock. Yeah, it's hair metal because ah, all right. the only re- I've never heard the record. But the only reason I know them, sure this will come up. You know what? I don't want to spoil it. Forget it. Ooh, no? okay. Ooh. teaser. Rob's put it in his back pocket. All right. You know what I'm going to guess? It's got to be that Steely Dan did a jingle. <laughs> <for this record>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that should be fun. I mean, 80s hair metal is nothing if not fun. Well, I have a particularly soft spot for it, as I think listeners might realize from my Dr. Feelgood and Poison days. So we look forward to that. Please listen to Hanoi Rocks. Back to Mystery City. Back to Mystery City. Join along with us, dear listeners. We appreciate you listening. Come along with us on this journey. We'll be back next week. But for this week, that will be a wrap for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Adam. And I am Phil. Aboosh. He's got the bush.